Today's reading is uh, Genesis chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is, Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, and so it was named Alon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. But you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While there was still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. As she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons. The sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people.
old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, what a wonder that you speak to us, really. How extraordinary that as we gather here this evening, we fully expect to hear you speak and speak personally. We pray that your spirit would take your words and apply them as needed to our hearts to wound and to heal, so that we're shaped to be like Christ. How wonderful you're doing that work amongst us. Please, once again, do that amongst us, we ask, for the glory of your name. I don't know how regularly um, any people read the briefing. Uh, the magazine's always on sale. Uh, the, this one, which I, you won't want this one, I've just thrown water all over it. But this one, um, the most recent one, it's all about, all about John Chapman, who uh, died recently, the, uh, the great Australian uh, evangelist. If you don't know anything about him, he's a life well worth reading. He's an extraordinary character, uh, a hoot of a man, uh, full of life, full of joy, uh, and uh, wonderfully used uh, by God. And it's a great account of his life and ministry and what took place. And when I read that, one of the things I didn't know uh, about John Chapman's life was that um, actually in the 1950s, he got very grumpy about a movement that uh, was taking place at the time. It was called Victorious Christian Life in uh, 1950s Australia, essentially a movement saying that uh, as you matured in the Christian life, you could be sinless and your life could, uh, if you behave rightly, your life would be just a smooth pathway and you'd move from one degree of victory and glory to the next. And as a, as a younger man, John Chapman found this abhorrent and fought tooth and nail against it because he saw lots of people damaged. Because you think that, or if you're taught that and you assume that's the normal Christian life, and you do seek to honor the Lord, but actually you get sick, or you lose your job, Actually, just life is a bit of a grind at times, which it is at times. Well, have I fallen away of something? And so he saw this did enormous damage and uh, fought against it. Well worth reading. That's not all you can read about him. He's a man of great infectious joy. But realism in the Christian life as well. Realism. And we do need to know that. That the Christian life is a mixture here and now of progress in knowing the Lord, a great delight in knowing that the Lord. But there is frustration in a fallen world, and things go wrong, and there are hardships, and there are setbacks. And that's how it is. Not forever. We'll die and go to heaven, and that'll be great. But for now, there's reality to that. I sat next to a chap on the bus uh, one day this week, and um, uh, a lovely bloke, he had, had a Bible and some Bible reading notes. Terrific. So I engaged him because I was... Why wouldn't you? Um, but uh, as I saw as he got them out, his Bible reading notes were titled Reading God's Word for God's Champions, Living the Triumphant Life. And uh, so I saw that and I said, oh, it's great. What are you reading? Oh, it's this guy and from and where I come from, Nigeria. I said, oh, do, can I just ask, do you feel triumphant every day? He just laughed. He said, you must be joking. Why would it be on a bus next to you if I was triumphant? <clears throat> I said, why do, you, why do you read these things? He just said, I don't know. Actually, sometimes they're rubbish. <laughs> sometimes they're encouraging. Okay, okay, okay. But if you expect it's triumph every day, golly, there's going to be disappointment, isn't there? There needs to be realism. 
Of course, the disaster would be to flip the other side and think the Christian life is just drudgery. And for whatever you get given 80 years, it's just one foot in front of the other, and that's all it is. And you just life is the life of Eeyore, and woe is me, and I'm going to sit on a thistle and eat a thistle, because that's all I'm good to do. No, 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 no. You want to have realism. And in this life, we do want to expect to see God grow his kingdom amidst the chaos and the ruin and disaster at times. The kingdom grows amidst chaos. It's always been that way. It will be that way until Jesus returns. And I think really that's what's going on in Genesis chapter 35. Um, If you've been with us, we've uh, been looking then at the life of Jacob, really these chapters 25 to 35 for the last 10 weeks or so, and tonight is the last night. That may be good news or bad news, depends if you've enjoyed the ride. But um, essentially, of course, the book of Genesis is the story of God establishing his kingdom through his people. You get the magnificent promise of Genesis chapter 12, the quad promise that God will provide a vast offspring to Abraham in a promised land. His presence will be there to bless them, and they will be a blessing to other people, Those quad, the quad promise that really unwraps the rest of the Bible in a sense. But in Genesis, the focus really is on the offspring. Will Abraham grow into a great nation? Because, of course, Abraham is married to Sarah, and she's barren. Eventually, they have a child. Isaac, who's married to Rebecca, who is barren. Eventually they have children. And uh, the, the promised child is Jacob, who's married to Rachel, who is barren. So the, the, so the, the, uh, the theme of Genesis is, we're going to get this great nation. You're going to get the offspring growing, growing, growing. Well, at the end of chapter 35, we get to the end of this, uh, this section. You can tell that because chapter 36, verse 1 is a new section. This is the account of Esau. That's the sort of divider marker in the book of Genesis. This is the account of. Um, so it's the end of a section. And how are we doing? How are we doing when we get to the end of Jacob's life? When you read chapter 35, you'd have to say, well, it's pretty mixed, isn't it? Some blessings, a lot of funerals, a bit of incest. It's a fairly mixed bag of eclectic anecdotes gathered together. And we've had some terrific yarns taking place. Some, some, but this is just sort of, oh, and here's the other stuff kind of thrown in at the end. Well, in one sense, this is the easiest chapter for us to understand because you see God is growing his kingdom amidst the chaos. Lots goes wrong. Lots is flawed, people are sinful, and yet the kingdom grows. It's always that way. It'll never be fast till Jesus returns. Let's work our way through it. Actually, we'll spend probably half our time on the first point uh, and then uh, pick up considerable pace, I promise. For, for the little things, and the first is this, that the Lord graciously calls again. The Lord graciously calls again. Uh, really, verses 1 to 4. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the horrific chapter uh, 34, this terrible, terrible story, when uh, Jacob bogged up. So Jacob uh, was meant to go to the place of Bethel. Years earlier, uh, 20 years earlier or so, um, he'd met God at Bethel, uh, had this great vision of uh, the staircase and angels going up and down the staircase that God had provided between earth and heaven. And uh, Jacob said, wow! that's amazing, and Lord, I know I'm going into exile, but if you protect me, if you bring me back to this promised land, I'll come back to Bethel and worship you. He comes back to the promised land and goes to, not Bethel, Sukkot, and then Shechem. 
And because of that, disaster strikes in Shechem. His daughter is raped and his sons go on a killing spree. It's a disaster. Horrible chapter, chapter 34. And so right at the end of the chapter, you read Jacob's frame of mind in verse 30, chapter 34, verse 30. He's paralyzed, really, by what's taken place. Jacob said to his sons who've been on the killing spree, Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. For if you in number, if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Paralyzed by his sin, by the actions of his sons, by fear of what might take place. His sons are furious with him. What do you do? They replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Just pimped out your daughter, you ridiculous man. What sort of father are you? So it's not a great scenario. Jacob has bogged up. Uh, Jacob has bogged up and he's paralyzed by the mistake he's made. And he's paralyzed by the fear that's come as a result of that. Into that scenario, God calls. Chapter 35, verse 1. But then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there. And build an altar to God there, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau those 20 years ago. Now note what the Lord doesn't say. He doesn't say, Look, you idiot, what trouble you brought on yourself by disobeying me. No. He doesn't say, Jacob, you coward, why are you afraid? How many times do I need to tell you, I am with you to protect you? Listen, Muppet, I am with you. No, he doesn't say that. He says very simply, come on, go up to Bethel and and, uh, build an altar there. In other words, Jacob, there's more grace for you. Golly, you've had a terrible time, haven't you? And it's your fault. But there's more grace for you, Jacob. Come back to me. Ten years you've wasted in Shechem. Ten years of your life written off because you didn't do what you promised to do. You didn't obey me. Ten years lost of your life. And your children have behaved appallingly and experienced appalling offences. You have made a mess of it. Let's go again, Jacob. There is more grace for you. I don't know if you heard the story. Um, Alan Redpath was a well-known Christian minister of the 20th century uh, in the States. He ministered in Chicago for quite some time, then in Scotland and in London. A fairly prominent evangelist. Uh, he grew up in Newcastle, Newcastle, I guess, if you grew up there, um, uh, and uh, converted in his late teens. And um, I think at university, went, started working at an accountancy firm. Uh, one night, went out with some, some of his colleagues and got blindingly drunk, steamingly drunk, and got up to all sorts of uh, mischief. And that one evening, he was so discouraged that he could do that, having become a Christian, that he just gave up on the Christian life. He said, oh, I can't be, if, if, I, if I'm not going to make, if I'm not going to be a decent Christian, proper Christian, I just give up. And so for seven years, he worked as an accountant, and no one knew he was a Christian. And you wouldn't know the difference between him and anyone else in the office, because he went out and got drunk, and wasn't wise with women, etc. 
after seven years of living like this, which is someone got word around, and the bloke who was a late, as a, uh, in his late teens had led him to Christ, arranged to meet up with him for a drink. And they chatted through what had gone on. And they chatted through where Alan was at. And he's like, yeah, 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 I just, I can't see myself coming back to Christianity, really. I, I'm not sure about that. Well, I am a Christian. I know God will keep me, but, you know. As they parted, the chap said to him very simply, Alan, you do know it's possible to have a saved soul but a wasted life. And that will be you. But have a saved soul but a wasted life. Okay, thanks very much. Cheers. The next day, he went off to play a game of rugby. And in the way Alan Redpath tells it, he was on the train, old-fashioned train. And uh, as the train went round, clicking on the tracks, all he could hear the train saying was, saved soul, wasted life. Saved soul, wasted life. Saved soul, wasted life. Saved... Oh, God, I am. Um, so his mind was slightly elsewhere. And then he got onto the pitch. This is, you know, a few decades ago. So fairly traditional sort of setting. And so it was a band, you know, brass-doff type band playing before the two teams play and there's a bloke banging the drum and he, the way he tells the story all he could hear is the drums banging was saved soul wasted life saved soul and uh, he says worst game of rugby ever played in his life and then afterwards he just thought oh, this is ridiculous and he got down on his knees and said all right i'm yours i don't want to waste my life i want to commit my life and serve you however you want me to but he completely changed around because he knew that was he was guilty of that. He could be a saved soul, but a completely wasted life. Changed around, God redirected his course. Ultimately, then he became an evangelist, a minister. He led many, many, many hundreds to Christ. Served the Lord until the end of his life. God didn't have, let him have a saved soul, but a wasted life. And God says to Jacob here, don't do that. Don't be one of my people, but waste your life. Come back to me. There is more grace for you. And I have good works for you to do. Come back, Jacob. Come to Bethel. I wonder if some need to hear that. You've made a complete pig's ear of something in your Christian life, or maybe as a non-Christian, you've made a complete pig's ear of something. You think, oh, that's it. I any sort of sense of being a Christian that's just off the, off the ballpark, you need to hear the Lord's word, which is, come back to me. There's more grace for you, and I have good works for you to do. Come back. We can go again. Or if you're a bit scared, like Jacob is here, and you look out and think, I just can't see the way forward. I'm having a midlife crisis in my 20s or uh, in the middle of my life. I'm just having a midlife. I can't see the way forward. I'm scared. I don't know what the next few years brings. I don't know what I'm meant to do next. I, what do I do next? I can't. I just don't. Come back to me. Calm down. There's more grace for you. And I have good works for you to do, says the Lord. Or maybe more prosaically, you're just drifting half-heartedly through the Christian life, being unproductive. And the Lord says, come back to me. There is more grace for you, and I have work for you to do. The Lord graciously calls again. What does Jacob do? Well, he responds <clears throat> in verses 2 and 3. Briefly, he responds in repentance and faith. So Jacob said to his household, verse 2, and to all who are with him, do you know this is the first time in 11 chapters that Jacob has led his family spiritually? Isn't that great? Eventually, 
that's great. He's actually doing the right thing here. He leads them in repentance and faith. So verse 2, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, purify yourselves, change your clothes. Repentance is all that means. Let's repent of how we've lived, get rid of these false gods that we nicked from Laban and others. Change clothes, just a mark of we were defiled by what's taken place in Shechem. Let's get new garments on. Let's repent. And he goes again, and let's have faith. Verse 3 is terrific, isn't it? Let's go and build an altar to God. Who is God? He is, verse 3, the one who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I've gone. Repentance and faith. I take it very easy for Jacob to think, okay, I've got to go to Bethel, but I can't. What am I going to say to my family? My boys hate me. They think I'm a loser. They call me loser dad to my face. So they call me pimp dad to my face. It's taken quite a lot of effort for him to say, boys, family, I mean, not boys, they're men. They're men who've just gone around killing people. Men in my family, we need to repent and put our trust in the Lord again. That probably took some effort. Because he responded rightly. Don't have a saved soul but a wasted life. Return to the Lord in repentance or in other gods. Faith, remembering that he has been good to you in Jesus Christ. Return to him when he graciously calls. It's amazing. At this stage of Jacob's life, the Lord calls him again. Amazing. Let's push on to the others more briefly. Uh, the Lord graciously calls again, uh, first thing. Second thing then, the Lord blessed Jacob as he promised. Of course he did. The Lord blessed Jacob as he promised, verses 5 to 15. Well, as we went our way through these 11 chapters, we've given them the title, God's Promises That Will Not Let Sinners Go. And that's obvious in this sort of uh, summary section you get of where we're up to in uh, verses 5 to 15. There are three little Ps. Oh, this is terrible, but anyway. Three little Ps that the Lord gives to uh, to Jacob. First then, he gives him protection, verse 5. They set off. And the terror of God fell upon all the towns all around them so that no one had pursued him. It's amazing. Pursued them, rather. Amazing. Chapter 34, verse 30. Jacob says, we're going to die. No, you're not. God's with you, you fool. It's very straightforward when he's with you. Chapter 35, verse 5. He protects you. Of course it's well. And so, verse 6, he comes to Bethel and builds the altar protection verses 9 and 10 there's purpose for Jacob's life so verse 9 uh, God appears to him again this is the last time God appears face to face with anyone in Genesis I guess you'd say in the Bible as well interesting anyway but uh, verse 9 and 10 God appears to him again and he reminds him your name is Israel so verse 9 Jacob returned from Padam Aram God appeared to him again and blessed him God said to him your name is Jacob you'll no longer be called Jacob your name will be called Israel so he named him Israel uh, didn't we have this before? Yes, but the point seems to be, Jacob, you've got two names really, haven't you? I've called you Israel, struggle with God, father of a nation. That's your destiny, that's what you'll be. But you keep living as Jacob, deceiver, feeble man. And the narrator of this book, Genesis, keeps calling you Jacob, because that's kind of how you live. But I'm telling you very clearly, you are Israel. I, the Lord, call you Israel. That is your purpose. That is your destiny. Get on with what I have called, called you to be. The father of the nation. Encouraging. You have a purpose that hasn't gone. So there's protection, verse 5. Uh, there's the purpose, his name, verses 9 and 10. And then you just, you just got to run with this one. There's um, 
prolific progeny um, of verse 11. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. Prolific progeny. A nation and community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. These promises given to Abraham, given to Isaac, amplified here. Enormous numbers will come from you. And of course, by the end of the chapter, Jacob has his 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Everything is in place for this family to become the nation that by the time the book of Exodus begins has exploded to hundreds of thousands. God has put everything in place. There's protection. There's a purpose. There's progeny. Now, rightly understood, those are blessings in the Christian life as well. Those are promises that God gives to his church. He does protect his people. If you take nothing else away from Genesis 25 to 35, it's got to be this. God makes promises that don't let go. To the most despicable family, to the most hopeless loser that is Jacob Israel, he still uses him. He doesn't discard him. He doesn't let him go because he says, I've, pr- I've chosen you, I make promises to you, I will keep you. And that is true for the Christian. Pick a promise you want in one sense from the New Testament, but you could take it as Paul puts it in, in uh, Romans 8, that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't let his people go. He'll never let them go. He protects. Purpose. He still has good works for us to do when we come back to him in repentance and faith. Progeny? Yes. Yes. So again, um, uh, the Lord still says to us who are Abraham's descendants, certainly as Paul describes us, Romans 4, he says to Abraham's descendants, the church, Christian believers, be fruitful and increase in number just through giving birth, but through sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people and you'll see increase in number across this nation, across the globe. You'll see that take place. You'll see those things in Christchurch, Mayfair. You'll see those things in your own life, won't you? Many here will say, golly, the Lord has kept me despite my silliness, despite my mistakes. It's amazing he keeps me. Do you know what? I still do useful things for him. I don't know why he still uses me. In fact, one of my friends, one of my colleagues, one of my relatives, I've got to share the gospel they became a Christian. Those things still take place. Take place amongst us. Fabulous. The Lord made promises in Genesis 12. He repeats them to the patriarchs. He says them to the church. I'll protect you. My purpose is for you. There are, I know, it's, I know it's coerced, progeny. There are many who will come to become Christians as well. The Lord bless Jacob as promised. Two final things. Yet, verses 16 to 29, yet sin and death remain. That's the second half of the chapter, 16 to 29. Sin and death remain. Yet all sorts of tragedies here. So verse 8, Deborah dies, the faithful family servant, uh, buried at the oak of weeping. Verse 18 then, in the midst of giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel dies. Jacob's beloved, the wife he loved above all others. Verse 22, 
You get this, why is this recorded? Reuben, the oldest son, goes in and sleeps with Bilhah. That's Rachel's servant woman. Presumably to defile her so that his mum, Leah, is now top dog in the sort of pecking order of the wives. Presumably that's why he does it. But obviously it's a foul thing to do. It's abhorrent. No comment here. Jacob is a bit, you know, he's a bit feeble here. You get to the end of the book of the Genesis. Jacob on his deathbed blesses his sons, comes to Reuben, I curse you because you slept with Bilhah. Miserable. Miserable sin. What a screwed up family this is. And then verse 27, Jacob finally gets home. 30 years he's been away from his father. Finally comes home to Isaac. Happy family reunion? Well, Isaac dies. I guess he gets to meet his dad again after 30 years. But he probably envisaged it going slightly differently. Goes back to see mum, dad. No, mum has died already. Dad, hi dad. And that's it. Oh, funny old way to end. Why this seemingly random selection of biographical details, three funerals and an incest, Life is like that sometimes, often. Alongside blessing, alongside the kingdom of God growing, there's chaos and sin and death. And those things run alongside together. The Lord is building his kingdom amidst the wreckage of this world. So don't expect an endless stream of blessings. Don't expect churches to just always grow year on year. Growth is amidst the chaos. In your own life, don't expect that. There's sin and there's death. It touches most families at some point. Of course it does. And there's sickness and there's bereavement. There's unexpected disasters. And at the same time, the Lord grows his kingdom. And he does good work in your life. And you serve him faithfully. So expect the Lord to protect. Expect the Lord to protect you in the Christian life if you're a believer. Expect the Lord to give you purpose and work to do. Expect the Lord to have people for you to speak to. Yeah, expect all those things. Expect to see his kingdom grow in lots of ways. But expect there to be chaos as well. Now once is that downbeat, but once isn't that just encouraging? That's how it was back then when God spoke face to face. Think, oh, if God would just speak to me face to face, that would be so wonderful and everything would go well. Really? Really? No. No, of course not. The kingdom grows amidst chaos. It's very encouraging. Encouraging for us as a church. Lots of chaos at the moment. Lots of sickness amongst all sorts of people, staff and others. I mean, you know, plenty here are just about hanging on by their fingertips and all sorts of chaos at work or in personal lives. Yeah, the kingdom grows. Lots of good happens at the same time. That's how the Lord does his work. The Lord grows amidst the chaos, his kingdom. So the Lord blesses, sin and death remain, but it won't be that way forever. So lastly, very briefly, Rachel's tears will end. What do I mean by that? This becomes a bit of a motif uh, in the rest of the scriptures. A thousand odd years later, 
um, the nation of Israel has grown, it's been magnificent, it's uh, been a magnificent kingdom grown up under David, exploded under Solomon, and then split under Rehoboam, and uh, the nation gets conquered by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians. In the year 587, the whole city is destroyed. And Jeremiah records that. The destruction of Jerusalem in 587, a thousand odd years later. And Jeremiah 31 puts it this way. A voice is heard in Rama, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. That's how the destruction of Jerusalem is described. Rachel cries for her children because she's a mother of the nation. But it would go on, but but the Lord says, Jeremiah 31, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is hope for the future. What is it? He gets onto that a few chapters later. Of course, you'll know that from Christmas time, probably, if nothing else, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, when Herod slaughters all the babies under the age of two in an attempt to kill off King Jesus, of course he fails. But the writer says that's a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew says, there are tears in this world and there's chaos in this world. But at the same time, Matthew says, one escapes the chaos and God is building his kingdom. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ is born who goes up to be a man who dies on a cross. And if you trust in him, you're saved forever to be with him for eternity because he died and then rose and conquered death. And so God, at the moment, is building his kingdom in the midst of chaos. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ ensure that one day he'll return and the tears will end and the wreckage of this world falls away and all that's left is his kingdom. Let's be realistic about life here and now. The kingdom grows amidst chaos. And that is life, this side of eternity. When Jesus returns, it's just the kingdom. It's all that's left. The chaos and the wreckage are gone. So in the meantime, the Lord says, come back to me. I have, good, I have more grace for you. I have good works for you to do. Don't be a saved soul but a wasted life. Oh, it's easy in this wrecked, wrecked world. Wrecked world? Wrecked world. But I'll protect you. I have purposes for you. Serve me now. Be a part of this kingdom as it grows amidst the chaos. And look forward to one day when the chaos is gone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the realism of your word. It's an odd chapter, really. Not quite the, the happy ending we want at the story, at the end of Jacob's story. Yet, it is, yet it's reality to us, and we can recognize it easily. That amidst the blessings of knowing you and seeing your kingdom grow, there's sin, there's death, there's chaos. So, Father, in a world where we see those things all too readily, would we not be thrown by that? But would we push on in serving you? The wonderful God that you are, knowing that you have plans for us, you'll protect us, you have purposes in which we can serve you. So would we do so, looking forward 
to the day when the kingdom comes and is free from sin and death and wreckage. And we praise you that that day will come because of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing. and. Um,